0: Welcome to the Better Call Daddy Daddy Show. This is Big Daddy. Oh my God, that's hysterical. You're not gonna believe this.
1: Oh Oh my God. God. Five stars. Five and a half stars.
0: Uh Grandpa. My dad is my hero. Grandpa, are you ready? I love a good happy ending. Oh boy.
1: Hey, It's a phony baloney.
0: And a tit for tatter.
1: Hey, a lot of these things, I don't know where you're getting them from, it sounds like they're coming from when I look in the mirrors. Damn the public. Damn the public.
0: Part of why I'm doing Better Call Daddy is because I don't have all the answers and I'm willing to grow and learn and find out. Just like Deborah Driggs, former playmate and cover girl turned author, writer, and speaker. Deborah, welcome. I've been stalking you for the past two hours. Okay, good. <laughs> oh my goodness. I love What that. a career. And okay, I just saw aging gracefully takes work, doesn't it? It's
2: a major fucking job. Well, major you look beautiful. Job. Thank you. Thank you so much. Yeah, it's a, it is a full-time job. <laughs> like, I said that years ago and everybody burst out laughing and I thought that's my quote, you know, that's my cuz I I believe it. It's one of those things where it just never stops. It's like, okay, like now I'm in my 50s, so I'm like it's even more work. I'm like, god, I thought I was supposed to like mellow out.
0: <laughs> Uphill battle, right?
2: It is. But, you know, if you do it, like if you're consistent and you're graceful about it, you know, and you don't take it seriously, I think that's what makes it graceful.
0: I heard something interesting last night that there was this study done about wounds and healing, like people that didn't work. It was also equivalent to people who meditate in wounds healing. Like they did a study where they put like a chemical burn Uh, And they did a control group and it was like the people that meditated, it healed quicker. The people that didn't work, it healed quicker. And then people that didn't do either one of those things, it took longer for the burn to heal. And I was like, that's interesting that that can even be
2: measured. Yeah, it can. I believe it. So that just goes to show
0: like how important it is to like slow down that it can literally affect you on a physical level.
2: Yes, absolutely. I I believe that a hundred percent. It's one of the reasons now why I have my routine. I just, there's no negotiating my routine. I have a morning routine, which is how I start my day. Because if I don't start my day that way, if I don't start it with an intention where I'm silent and I pray or meditate or put on some type of inspiration, my day will go any way it wants. But if I direct it, I have a better chance of having a better day. And so I'm like, why not start the day out directing it exactly how you want it to go and putting that intention out? And then when those little things happen, like there were things that happened today and I I was Instagramming about it with my daughter because she was getting so fed up with this new machine that we bought. (laughs) And I just like, we laugh now because... Those things in the past would be like, oh my God, let's just send it back. And like, you just go crazy over these things that really, at the end of the day, don't mean anything. And another thing I do throughout my day that I find really grounds me and really centers me is I have a question I ask regularly throughout the day. And that is, where am I? Just to stop my mind. I do it on purpose now. It doesn't matter where I am, what I'm doing. I literally will stop what I'm doing and go, where am I? And it's like, I'm in charge of the thoughts. I'm in charge of my mind. I'm in charge of where I want my focus to go. And I just stop and I go, where am I? And I look around and I go, okay, there's nothing threatening me. There's no fire. There's no bear chasing me. Everything's good, right? Yeah. Everything's good. Because if I just let this thing go by itself, the craziest stuff, I mean, if there was a recorder recording what goes on in my head, people would be scared. They'd be like, you need to be institutionalized very quickly because the shit that goes on is like, (laughs) like, really?
0: It's a great pattern interrupt.
2: It's a total pattern interrupt. And, and, you know, it takes practice like anything else. And the minute you stop doing it, you go back to the crazy dizzy thinking and, you know, for me, I suffer from that stuff. You know, I suffer from paranoia. I suffer from really low grade depression. I suffer from waking up in the middle of the night, completely riddled with anxiety. And so I I have those, those illnesses, right. And the only way to combat it, the only way to recover on a consistent Mm -hmm. basis from it is to be practicing continually things that will combat those issues. And I'm not special and you know, a lot of people suffer. And it is mental illness awareness month, which I love. I love the awareness that's finally being brought up. You know, 10 years ago when I was really suffering and really wanted to die, I all I thought about was how can I just leave this planet? What would I would literally Google ways to leave the planet? Like how do you do it without it being messy? And Because I was suffering and I didn't know why, you know, it was just like suffering and you don't have to suffer. You don't have to suffer. It's like, I just remember just like being like, oh God, why why won't it stop? And why is this following me everywhere I go? I just felt like, why is everybody else seem to be getting on with our lives? And I feel stuck. It's brutal, you know, and nobody was, it would be like, people just go, just be happy just suck it up. Just get over it. And then, you know, people would think, well, it's, you know, it's your divorce. It's this. And then they'd start giving me reasons why (laughs) I'm like, it's none of those things really. It's, it's something that I'm feeling even when things are good. And that's when I started like tripping out because I was like, oh my God, things are good. And I feel this way. I'm finally successful in my business. And I feel this way. I finally met this great person and I'm dating and it feels great and I still feel this way. That's the kind of stuff that I have to think about and so that's kind of what my journey was writing the book because I thought and it's so interesting because I wrote this book during the pandemic and I thought, well, if it helps one person, if somebody's inspired by my journey, the fact that yes, I was I had all these great little 5 minutes of fame or these little things that happened along the way, but all during that time I was suffering and just did not feel right. There was something off, you know, now I have awareness. I have awareness that these things are traumas and no matter what they're there. And it's not about getting over them. It's about being aware that they're there and it's okay. That's why I said, I ask myself all the time, where am I? What's going on in this present moment? Because those traumas that stuff that just used to scare me so bad. And by the way, it's interesting. I could walk in a room and something about that room would trigger those feelings or a smell would trigger it. And I, that's what would kind of like make me go, what, why am I so freaked out right now? You know, or something somebody would say, I'd get all paranoid. Like, I don't know if you've ever smoked pot. I can't smoke pot. I'm one of those people that cannot smoke pot at all. Because I'm already paranoid. And when I smoke pot, it's like, oh my God, everybody's looking at me, you know, and I go completely off the reservation. So I know that about myself, like, don't give me pot because I'm just not, I don't do well with it at all. Is it like a
0: loop of like revisiting the same traumas or is it different situations?
2: Yeah, I think the only way I can explain it for myself is that if you do suffer from trauma or, or any type of abuse or anything like that, or any, any situation in your life, I've had a lot of accidents too. I was in three car crashes. I got thrown off a horse. You know, I've had a lot of different things like that, that have happened throughout my life. I, in, when I was in kindergarten, I fell flat on my head, on my face and smashed my nose. And I didn't know this, but my nose never grew. It was, it stayed the same. So I had this like, <laughs> I'd I, be happy with that. <laughs> meanwhile I've had like seven surgeries to get it to look like this but I mean it's fabulous (laughs) thank you so it's because it's reconstruction and when I was nine they did the first one just so I could have something but because I smashed it so bad it's it just never grew you poor baby
0: too oh my god you were so so young
2: yes you could mess so that was the first Trauma. Then I had my before that I had my tonsils out and I almost died from that. I lost all this blood. I was in the hospital for two months. It's like all these things that when when I go into a deep meditation, they like, oh, that's why I feel so scared about that, or you know, where that kind of comes up. And so, and by the way, people suffer from one trauma. I had many throughout my childhood. And so I didn't know though. I went through my life thinking, well. You're doing so well. Everything's great. Or you married the man of your dreams and you have three beautiful children. What you should be so grateful. And I wasn't, I was, it wasn't that I wasn't grateful. I just couldn't feel the happiness about it. And it was just like blocked and blocked and blocked. And it's taken really a lot of work. I talk about this in my book, a lot of work to get aware and know that that's what was happening. And it was okay that I just didn't know you know, and to let myself off the hook for not being able to function like everybody else. I just couldn't. You like that as a kid? I think so. I really do. I think so because I can remember being in places with my parents and being very nervous all the time. And I just don't, I don't like to be confined at all. How did your parents respond to that? They didn't know. Like I said, I didn't even know this until three years ago. Wow. Because nobody talked about it. People would go, go to therapy. Well, here's the thing about therapy and I have so much appreciation for it and I respect it, but it doesn't work for for me because I don't want to go back and relive all this trauma in this past and talk about it. I want tools of how to deal with it and move forward. I think that there's a more of an awareness. Now there's more people, teachers, mentors, coaches that understand and have solutions to help with, you know, I used to do this adventure racing. I started doing it after my third child, because after I had my third, I suffered with postpartum depression, didn't know what it was, just knew that I didn't want to do anything. All the things I love to do, I didn't want to do them anymore. And, And so I started slowly hiking and going on mountain bike rides. And I had a girl say, well, if you're mountain biking, you should join our team and start adventure racing with us. And I loved that time in my life because here I was training four to six hours a day and I was getting all that great natural medicine going. And that medicine kept me really up and really positive. But even with that, even with all that training and all of that, there would be moments where I'd doubt, I'd get that that anxious, doubtful feeling. And it's the only way I can explain it because I think that, anybody that suffers with anxious feelings or low grade depression or depression or whatever you want to call it, there are thousands of names for all these things is, it doesn't matter what success you're having. It's, it's debilitating when you start getting that like doubtful, like, can I do this? I don't know. I don't, you know, it's, and it's not that you can't do it. (laughs) I said, it's a debilitating feeling of overwhelm. And then it just like, Oh, I can't do it. I can't do it. I can't do it. It's so fear-based. I mean, you look at people like Robin Williams and, and you just, it's heartbreaking because there was somebody that was so unbelievably talented. And if er, you ask anybody, everybody loved him. And it, that's what I'm saying. It's, and I don't know how he felt and I i can't speak for him, but it makes me so sad because that's like all that talent. And it's crazy. To, because... It's tragic. It's tragic.
0: Oh, that is totally completely tragic and I feel like social media is such a different perception of people and we're in the land of LA is the land of the grass is always
2: greener and
0: you really don't know what people's lives are like
2: you don't no. and so I decided this year because I used to just post random posts and all that now it's like I'm really intentional about what I post is this going to inspire somebody? Is it, you know, I'm now 57 years old. So I hope that, you know, I'm starting over at 57. I hope that people go, oh, well, if she can start over at 57, I can start over at 30, you know, and, and know that, yeah, it's, it's definitely, I've had moments in the last three months where I was like, okay, you know what, my life is really good. I can just get on an airplane and go travel. And I don't need to be doing all this, heavy lifting and writing every day. And I can just live a very quiet, you know, that's my brain will just try to talk me out of stuff. And I'm like, no, no, I won't settle for that anymore. We're going to just stay on this path.
0: <laughs> yeah. So it is really crazy to me that you have this anxiety and fear, and yet the things that you have accomplished and done are not normal.
2: <laughs> yeah. Yeah. In my twenties and thirties, it was a lot easier you know, because I could back then people would say things that helped with it, like, oh, that's Debbie. She's just being adventurous or, oh, of course, that's what Debbie's going to do. Of course, she's going to go off and date Prince Albert of Monaco, you know, just as an example, you know, of course, she's going to, you know, be on the cover of Playboy, you know, and so it just seemed like I was doing all these adventurous things. And of course, she's going to be successful. I just had that attitude of I acted as if I went on auditions as if I already had the part. If I already had the job, I already, I already booked it. It was already, it was already done. Like I walked in with that attitude. And so it wasn't a huge surprise when I, when I started booking things a lot more and, and, you know, when I land on the Oprah Winfrey show, my, everybody was like, what else is this girl going to do? You know? And it's interesting because people think that those things are, are really big moments. And for me, they were just like steps. It was like, okay, I'm almost there. I'm almost there. I'm almost there. I never felt like I really reached my goal in that business. What do you feel like your goal would have been? I really, really would have liked to have done a role that was really meaty and really juicy and like really like made me work really, really hard, you know, like made me so uncomfortable and like you know i wish i would and i wish i would have stayed in my acting school i wish i would have not i did 2 years i wish i would have stayed longer and really got really good like i wish i would have just given it all and I, and, and not you know i got married which is so beautiful and amazing and had 3 children and so i just kind of slipped away you know and in 1998 i did my last tv show And I remember memorizing my lines and preparing to do the show as a comedy. And I, and I had three, three young children at home. I had a baby at that point and it was a lot of work to memorize and prepare and do all of that. And I thought, I can't compete anymore with kids. It's, it's a lot of work, but what's really beautiful is that now, you know, I still have the same agent that I had when I was 25. Do you really? Yeah. Yeah. That's interesting. You don't know, I still often. have, it's interesting because I did a lot of commercials and he was my commercial agent. And then he left that agency and opened his own agency. And I went with him. And when I moved in 2003, I moved to park city and I had been going out randomly, you know, once in a while, I'd go out for something if, if it worked with me and my kids and the schedule and all of that. And so when I moved to park city, I had an agents, an agent in Salt Lake. I was with talent management group in Salt Lake City and always stayed in touch with my agent here in LA. And then a couple of years ago, I called him and I said, I think I, I think I want to start going out again. I think I'm at an age now where I think I'll work more now than I did in my 20s. And he's like, You will. That's absolutely right. We had a Zoom call about four weeks ago, once I finished my book, and I said, You know, I just wrote a book, I have a book coming out, and so I need I need representation and He's like, of course, always Deborah. you know, it was like time had hadn't even passed. And that's what's really cool is, you know, I had that relationship with them. And and so, you know, we'll see, you know, it's like now I'm more relaxed about it. You know, when I was in my 20s, it was like gig to gig, you know, surviving, you know, because it's paid. You don't know when your next job is going to be. And so it was a did different- he get you
0: into Playboy?
2: No. So I had been in L.A. I moved to L.A. in 1984 ish 85 ish with two girls and i had an a couple of uh agents this is before him i ha- i was with pacific artists and uh, mary webb davis and kathy clark all these agents that people if i from the 80s would know so i was booking commercials and doing catalog work and you know the sunday paper you'd see like an ad for a department store that'd be me and and then there was a cable show called the fashion channel and i was the model on that show for uh, for about a year and in 1989, my print agent got a call and she said, Playboy's coming out with a new book called the Lingerie Book, and they are very interested in you for the cover. And I said, Well, is there any nudity involved? Because that's how you, you know, that's how I thought of Playboy. And she said, I don't think so. And so I went on the audition, and you know, it was a famous building on Sun. Everybody knew the Playboy building back then. It was a famous building on sunset in La Angeles. And so I go to the famous Playboy building, I sign in, they came to get me and they gave me a robe and said, go change in this room, it was a beautiful changing room, and then we'll bring you on set to do a Polaroid. And I'm like, change? So I took everything off, but I left on my undergarments. And I came out and they're like, no, we need to see your whole body. And I said, oh, no, I'm not here for that. I'm here for the cover of the lingerie book. And they're like, well, everything we do has nudity. We need to see your body. Now, in 1989, it was a different time. They were looking for birthmarks, piercings, tattoos, because back then, you didn't work so much if you had all those, you know what I mean? It was like airbrushing wasn't a thing yet. And so I said, well, yeah, I'm not comfortable. I'm just going to leave my undergarment. And so we did a few Polaroids and I left and I thought, well, I'm not going to get that job because I'm definitely not Playboy material. And that afternoon, I got a call and they said, we're interested in shooting you for a centerfold. And I was like, I think you're confusing me with another girl. I think there's a mix up. And they're like, no, we wanna shoot you. And so that's how it happened. I, I wasn't aspiring to be in the magazine and it just really kind of fell in my lap, which is really, really super grateful now for it because you know I think the history of Playboy is so damn cool. And meeting half was huge highlight you know, for me in my life, it was huge having, having that. Rapport he's a legend. With, he's a legend. I mean, it, there's so much I could say about that, but yeah. So the whole thing was amazing. I was treated like a queen. Did when you I, take it all off? Absolutely. I got, <laughs> everything. And it was very surreal by the way, because I was 20, I was older for playboy too. I was 25, but I looked like a baby, you know, I looked really young. And so I was 25 and most of the girls were 18, 19. And, and so I was like the PTA, you know, I was, like in the, I was like, I was old for Playboy, really. I just remember I was in the makeup room and talking with the makeup artist. And she's like, you know, dad, we get over a 1000 submissions a day from girls all over the world trying to get in this magazine. And it just hit me like it got very surreal. I was like, wow, oh my god, you know, and here it just here I was. And it, that's when I was like, I am really like, how did I end up here? And I remember there was a moment where I shot with Richard Fegley, and he was an amazing photographer. I was just looking around the set and looking around the building. And he's like, are you okay? And I'm like, this is so weird. And he's like, I know.
0: You had one of those, where am I moments? I like, did. what you doing
2: now. <laughs> I did. See, I was even doing it back then, but I literally was looking at the studio and I was like, what am I doing? Like if these walls could talk, you know, how many people have been in this studio and this is 1989. I mean, these are famous walls. What did that lead to? Everything, everything. I met everybody. It just opened up every door. All of a sudden, everybody wanted to meet with me. I was the centerfold of March 90. And then I was on the cover of the magazine, April 90. And because I had all that momentum, the Oprah Winfrey show called. And next thing I know, I'm flying to Chicago to do the cover for another cover for Playboy. And I'm shooting the Oprah Winfrey show for the Valentine's Day special. And it was just a whirlwind. And then the cable network Playboy channel. Had a show coming out called Hot Rocks, and I get a call; they want to meet with me. And I was the first VJ for Playboy's Hot Rocks, and so that was a huge deal. And I shot that; I did that show for over a year. With you know, that
0: light girl, tell me that must have been amazing.
2: It was because the first show, and I don't know, you were like pre Jenny McCarthy. Yes, because she actually did the show after me, and. My first show, I had to interview Barry White. It was Hell in- yes, it was like crazy. I'm in the studio with him, and I'm like, okay, is <laughs> I'm pinching myself, like, what is going on? Like, I'm interviewing Barry White. Were you, you know? nervous? So Were you nervous. starstruck? Yeah, totally. Of course, I was. Yeah. Always, I would go on auditions and have to read for Billy Crystal or Ryan O'Neill and Farrah Fawcett. I remember going. They had a big sitcom in the night in the eighty nine ninety and or 91, somewhere in there. And they had a big sitcom. And I went in to read and I completely bombed because I was so starstruck. I couldn't take my eyes off her. She's so beautiful. And I was like, what the heck? Dad, you're supposed to be focused. Like that's, it was terrible. But I was like, she's so damn beautiful. And I couldn't take my eyes off of her. And I was like, oh my God. And I was totally, totally blew it. And then, you know, and then there were times where I had serious auditions, like I read with Gary Oldman, which was amazing. He is a mind-blowing actor. I mean, mind-blowing. That's and, so cool to get to yeah. see that kind
0: of talent up close.
2: Yes. And, you know, there were times where I got very close to getting, I would read for a lot of different pilots and I'd get right to the neck and neck. And then, you know, it just, you know, that's how it is. That's how the business is but I get so close to getting like a regular role on something and, and then something would happen or they'd go a different direction, you know?
0: <laughs> Did you get depressed over the rejection? I mean, how no. can you
2: not, you didn't. No, no, that's one thing I can say. I, I, I think that just came with it. The only way I can say this, if you're an actor or you're just starting out or you want to be in the business, 80% is staying in line and showing up. 20% is talent. And then if you're really talented, you're going to get to the head of the line. You know, the minute you deviate, you got to start over. You got to get back to the back of the line again. So just stay in line. And so I just kind of had that feeling like, okay, I didn't get this. And I would say, okay, next. And put my mind on the next thing. What about the percentage of it's who you know? Absolutely. Total nepotism. (laughs) both
0: in probably what you're doing now. You did say, I heard you on Sheila Mack's interview. You were saying that when you first started off in the insurance business, you reached out to the president
2: of Warner brothers. I did. I absolutely did. I, I would, love that. I had no money. This is a true story. I had no money. I would put myself in places like the polo lounge or the peninsula, and I would sit and order tea and I would just sit and just sip my tea. And People would come in and, you know, I'm from here and I grew up here. And so I'd run into people, Deb, oh my God, how are you? And then they'd sit and we'd chat. What are you doing now? Oh my God. Well, let me tell you what I'm doing. I'm selling life insurance. And then I would explain what I'm doing. And I'd say, it'd be really great if, you know, you know anybody. And if you would keep me in mind or remind yourself that this is what I'm doing or let people know, Deborah, of course, I'll totally refer you business. And that's what I would do. I would just sit in places where that was the kind of clientele that I wanted. I wanted people that wanted five, 10, $15 million of insurance, not a million dollars of term. That would take me too long to make the kind of money that I wanted to make. So I had to put myself where those people were. And yes, I called my friend because he used to be the head of Warner Brothers. And I called him and I said, if I can get you as a client, I can get, I know that you'll refer me. And it was a big pushback for a while. And then I finally... Took me, took me a while. And I finally got him as a client. And what's funny is that now, well, not now, but back, you know, when I first started, he would say things to people like, just do it. She's not going to leave you alone, you know? And I, so that's the beauty of, you know, being persistent in a, in a good way, you know, not in a pushy way, but I I was persistent in a way where I just said, look, I just want to make sure that you refer me because in the entertainment business, a lot of people are required to have life insurance, to do a show, to do, go on tour. So a lot of my clients are in the entertainment business, and that's how I was able to build. And so the more I stayed in front of people, the more opportunities I was getting as far as getting in front of business managers and family offices and people that were running Madonna's life. You know, Madonna, I'm not going to meet with Madonna, but I'm going to meet with her business manager. And so that's how I built. It didn't hurt that the person that I was working with was the number one life agent and that people would go to him for really difficult cases because he had established all these relationships with all the underwriters. So that helped also. You know, if you're a hustler and you're a go-getter and you don't give up, you can put yourself in these situations and make a nice opportunity for yourself. Okay. So I have some questions
0: that I would love to ask you. Okay. Because since I was doing some internet stalking, I'm going to pull it up. But basically I read that like you were the mistress
2: to one of the real housewives. No, 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 no. Okay. So you tell me, yeah. Can you set that straight? Yeah. Let me set that straight. No, I was not the mistress. No, 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 no. Tom and I are very good friends. Do you As know what I'm talking of, about? Yeah. yeah. Tom, Tom D'Agostino. Yes. He was married to Luann. Yes. And no, Tom and I, I was—I worked for Tom. I did was vice president of business development for his company. That's oh. one of the jobs I did. And so he and I are very, very good friends. And anytime I go to New York, we see each other, we hug, we kiss, we love each other. No, he's one of my dearest friends. I've known Tom since 2009. How did that hit the airwaves? What happened with that? Well, it's, it's, it sells. Right. And, and yes, that was a photo of Tom and I at that hotel. I was staying at that hotel with my daughter because my daughter went to college in New York and I was staying and he met me. He came in late night. And by the way, I knew he was engaged, but you know, I don't keep up with all the housewife stuff. I have a friend, Dorit, who's on the one in Beverly Hills, but it's not my world. Basically my phone was ringing off the hook and they just, all they wanted to do was confirm that that was me. But I said, have you ever had any other stuff like that happen? God, Hollywood is so crazy like that. They want to make a bigger story out of something, but yeah, no, Tom and I are great friends and I worked for him. And, and did I kiss him that night at the hotel? Yeah, absolutely. I did. I love Tom. we, We were just texting like an hour ago, you know, like he sends me funny, random stuff all the time. He's got a beautiful girlfriend. They He stayed in West Palm Beach during the pandemic. And anytime I had a lot of clients in West Palm Beach, matter of fact, Tom was one of my first life insurance clients. Love it. Yeah. So, you know what I'm saying? Like, that's why you always have to be careful. Of. Like I worked for him and he remained, we remained friends. And when I started doing life insurance, he was one of my first clients. That's um, awesome. When I Googled you, that came up and I was like, whoa. I know, is that silly? It's
0: so silly. It's so crazy. But like, I am so interested, like you worked in New York and LA and like, what were the differences in those experiences?
2: Huge, huge differences. And I will recommend to anybody to go and live in New York for one year. It will change your life. I had been, you know, I always visited New York, but I never lived in New York and living there and visiting are totally... There's nothing easy about New York, nothing. Everything was fast paced. The meetings are different. It's, there's no laid back, you know, like in LA where everything's laid back. You can be laid and blame it on the traffic and nobody dresses in LA In New York men are in suits, dressed to the hilt. two hour lunches. You know, if you show up at a meeting, you better have your elevator spitched down, they don't, it's like, you've got 10 minutes, let's move on. You know, it's very fast paced. I learned so much. I made a lot of mistakes there, but it was good ones because I really, I grew so much in a short period of time because I was like, oh, I, I get this now. I get this.
0: I, I would love to know, like, how you met your husband. What was that period like of like being married and becoming a mommy and putting your career aside? I know that it was great that you got to be a full time mommy, but like, you were kind of having some opportunities, like.
2: Yeah, I met my husband in my husband. I'll call him your husband. I know I heard you say that. I'd never heard that term before. <laughs> I like it better than ex husband. I met him in acting school and. We were friends during the first year. And then the second year we started dating and we were very serious. And then we got married in 92 and we had Kevin right away. And, and so we started a family and, you know, I, we were, I was really in, I only speak for myself now, but I was super in love with, with Mitch and we had a great life together. You know, there were ups and downs for sure, but there was a lot that was really beautiful. And so I try to just focus on that because if you just focus on what was wrong with something, that's all you're gonna get. And I try now to just focus on what was beautiful about it. And I have three beautiful children, and that's what I focus on. That's amazing. Three and three years. It was it was a lot of work. But you oh, know, God, I was yeah. also I was also really I loved being pregnant. I was one of those people that just loved being pregnant and didn't gain a lot of weight. And I was one of those people that girls hated because, (laughs) you know, I'd have the baby and I didn't look pregnant until I was seven months pregnant, you know, and I, I just, the way I did it. And I worked out when I was pregnant and I hiked and I was really fortunate and I, but I did work, you know, I hiked and I worked out and I did yoga and I did things to to prevent gaining that weight. It's hard. And then when we got divorced in 2004, that's when I was like, Oh shit, I gotta, I gotta work. I gotta go back to work. I gotta make money. And, you know, I didn't know what I was going to do. And so that's why, you know, 40 broke three kids divorced. Like, what do you do? And I felt really, really lonely at that time in my life. I had never really been alone. You know, now I'm divorced and I've got three kids and I couldn't have felt more lonely. I was just you know, up until that divorce, I had always been in a relationship. I'd always been with somebody or, you know, I had so many opportunities and I was always dating. And, and now all of a sudden I'm divorced and I'm single with three kids. And I, I got really, really fear, massive fear because I thought, wow, who's going to want to marry somebody with three kids? Who's going to want to take that on? And that's really how I thought, you know, nobody was, nobody going to want to, I'm like tired. <laughs> I had no, I didn't want to go out. And they were, how all, did you know, do that? I have no idea. <laughs> I have no idea. People ask me this all the time. And it's like, you just do it. I just kept putting one foot in front of the other. It was so hard. Mm. And, you know, and then my kids are going through their, their stuff. And I'd be at my office working and the school would call. And I'd have to leave my office and go to the school because something happened at school. And I kept, you know, it was just like, I was on this between work and three kids. And then if there was a difficult situation and then trying to like deal with everybody's emotions and my own, cause I, you know, I wasn't in a good place. And so, yeah, it was really a difficult time. It was not, not an easy time. And I was very involved with the temple and so I was teaching Hebrew school and I was That's so cool involved in my kids' school activities. And so I was trying to hold it together. And, and meanwhile, I'm falling apart as a person, oh my you gosh. know, and I think really because I had struggled for so long that my divorce, it wasn't because of my divorce, but, be, but the divorce just kind of, it was kind of like the tipping point. It was the, it was the time in my life where everything just brought me to my knees And I just thought, oh my God, I can't do it. I really, I cannot do it. I was just so overwhelmed and sad, really. I don't know if this has ever happened to you, but for me, it felt like I'd get one thing solved and then 10 more problems would show up. Oh yeah. (laughs) It was like, there was no let up. There was no air. And I was just like suffocating. It was like, oh my God, I can't breathe. I'd be like driving. I'd be like, I can't breathe. And I'd be trying to put on a smile and go work, and it would just get harder and harder. And then in 2008, I literally had a full-blown nervous breakdown because I was doing so well in real estate and I was, had this momentum. And then 2008, the market crashed. The first market to go is second home, multi-million luxury home. Like, who's buying that? So all of a sudden, there's no money. And I'm like, oh my God, now What? And I had a full-blown nervous breakdown where I literally had to call my lawyer and say, my kids have to go live with their dad. I had to go live with my mom. I had no money. I couldn't pay rent. Right. And I was heard just, you talking
0: about that. What the heck was that like moving back in with your mother in your forties? Oh
2: my God. Brutal. Yeah. I just, I literally just wanted to die. I, <sighs> I just thought, how did I end up here? I'm now in Ocala, Florida, in a 55 and over community. And I don't want to get out of bed. Like, I just don't want to get out of bed. I'm thinking, what how, what, what, am I going to do with this? You know, what am I going to do with this? And I was at the pity party for about two weeks. and <laughs> And then after about two weeks of me just not wanting to get out of bed and do, I had no motivation to do anything. Cause I thought, I don't even know where to start where do you start? And my kids are calling and they're like, we come get us, you know? And I'm like, I can't, I'm working on it. And I just didn't know what I was going to do. I had no money. And I was like, what the heck? And so two weeks go by and I'm like having this really fun pity party. And my mom came in my room and she's like, could you walk the dog for me? And I'm like, okay. I'm like, good God, really? So I'm walking around the neighborhood with the dog And there was a place in her community called the meeting place where everybody Mm -hmm. met with their dogs. And I'm there, people are talking to me and it's like, all I'm hearing is like, wah, wah, wah. And they're like, Oh my God, it must be so nice. Your mom must be so excited that you're here visiting. And Oh, I wish our kids would come and visit. And she's so lucky. And you know, our kids never come and visit. And And then they would tell me about their health issues. But what happened was, is that, All of a sudden I wasn't thinking about myself and I was listening and participating. And then every day I'd be like, I'm going to go walk the dog. And all of a sudden I had this purpose of like, every morning I'd get up, go walk the dog and I'd go on these long walks. And now I'm walking in nature and she lived in a really beautiful area. And I'd go and I'd walk the dog. And now I'm taking the golf cart and I'm taking the dog. And I know everybody, I know everybody's first name and everybody's like, hey, Deb, hey, Deborah." And next thing you know, I'm like involved in the community. And now I'm like, kind of like happy, I'm good. Like I could live in a 55 and over community and just be, this is great because now I'm not thinking about myself. I'm thinking about all these people that have health issues and their kids don't visit. And I'm hearing all their stories. And I realize that that's kind of what gets you going is when you're not thinking about your damn self. You know, when you're not thinking about your poor me, poor me, poor <laughs> me. and when you're thinking about other people you're not you don't have time to dwell on this nonsense and so it was getting better and better and then I had a friend the minute i it's interesting too because the minute you're like the universe knows okay she's ready she's back thank you I got a call from a friend in New York, not Tom, but another friend. And he's like, you need to come to New York. And I'm like, there's no way you don't even understand. Like, I look terrible. I have no money. I couldn't even do my hair right now. And he's like, pack a suitcase. You're coming to New York. Cause he's like, I know you, this is not you. And that's when I met Tom. I went to a a dinner and I was sitting next to Tom and Tom's like, well, what do you do? And that's when we became friends. And that was 2009. And Three months later, I was working for his company.
0: That is totally connected. Your
2: what did you say, husband? My Wes- husband was an Olympian. He, yep, he was in the nineteen eighty four Olympics. And so, yeah, he's, and he's, you know, it's it's interesting. I think we're all on this journey. We're all on this path of, you know, everybody's becoming aware. Even though our divorce was painful and not easy, I didn't have the tools really you know, from when I look back on it, I didn't have the tools. I didn't know what to do for me. It was a huge abandonment issue and like huge finance, all the things that are my character defects were really affected by my divorce. And it just took me into a very downward spiral. And so it didn't, we, you know, unfortunately just didn't end well. And that's a shame. You know, that's a shame. I'm, I'm really sorry about that because it didn't have to be that way. And, you know, I didn't help with that, but you know, I'm not all to blame on that, but I do know my side and my part. And that's all that matters today. As long as I know my part, that's all I need to worry about. I can't focus on what other people do think, say, or how they feel about me. It's none of my business. It sounds like
0: you have like a good relationship with your kids though.
2: I have a very good relationship with my kids. I talk to all three of them on a daily basis. We've been through it. You know, we've been through a lot when things happened 10 years ago, I'd sit in it for too long. Now it's like, if I'm wrong, I admit it very quickly. If they're wrong, they'll come and say, you know what? I was in a really, that was not good. And I'll be like, yeah, no, I get it. Here's the deal. You can't help anybody in life, anybody. And the whole purpose is to help another human being. I don't care what the circumstance is. The whole purpose is to help. And you can't help anybody if you're judging if you're judging them, if you're saying they're this, or they're that, or they behave like this, the minute you judge any human being on this planet, and I don't care who it is. You're not, you're not being of service. You can't help anybody. Can you talk about some of the ways in which you've chosen to give back? Cause you are
0: involved with helping a lot of people.
2: Selfishly. I really wanted to meet Richard Branson and, and cause I love his story and I love, I love his background. He's fascinating. And so he does a thing with Virgin Unite where he has 20 people go on these trips and they're very philanthropic. You know, he, we look at all of the things that he's very involved in from schools in Africa to all sorts of different innovative things that he does and builds. And so I went to Africa on a trip with, with Virgin Unite and donated quite a bit of money to that. And then I went a year later to Necker Island, to a leadership program where all these beautiful leaders came from all over the world. Martin Luther King III came with his wife, Van Jones, the ex-president of Columbia and his family. And just beautiful, the ex-prime minister of Bhutan. And they all spoke. And from that, I got to know Van. And, and so I got involved with his what he was doing with prison reform because I knew nothing about it. And he opened my eyes to a subject that I knew nothing about. And that's that's the whole point of doing those things is to be in proximity of people that are trying to make a change. And so I did an event with Van here in LA, and we did we showed his documentary, The Redemption Project, and I tried to get people to donate to that and to his cause. And then I got involved with another friend of mine who... Build schools all over the world and in very remote places where there is no money. That brings me more joy than anything, you know, just doing stuff like that. Oh
0: my know? God. My dad is going to love this episode. <laughs> <laughs> Better call daddy. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Is there anything you'd like to ask him?
2: Yes. Yeah. So, how did your show become Better Call Daddy?
0: He's always who I call for okay. relationship advice, for marriage advice, kid advice, life advice. He's just
2: my yes, biggest that's cheerleader. Beautiful. How beautiful is that? And it's your dad.
0: I call him every day, just like you that's... were saying about your kids. And yeah. when I'm having a hard time with one of my kids, I'm like, and you need to talk to this one.
2: <laughs> that's amazing. I love it. Well, you'll have to tell him I said, hello, and I'm happy that he'll get to hear this. Now,
0: let's switch it over to Grandpa.
1: I felt that you were very down to earth and had really a lot of humility that you're a beautiful girl. And even when Playboy was interviewing you, you were really even a little shocked that uh, they really wanted to pick you for a cover shoot. You know, a sense of modesty, having a little humility is really the way to go through life because, you know, looks can be exactly that, just skin deep and the person that is able to shine her inner self or his inner self and can show compassion and love and understanding of people, those people will certainly continue to be a bright light and shine a lot longer than just our appearance on the outside. I thought that the human struggles, where again, we might resolve one thing and then 10 more things come up, I think that happens to everybody but it's those people that can pivot, those people that can rise above adversities. They really have a chance to get further ahead in the game of life. Those that have devastating experiences and they're able to overcome it, not only does it make you a stronger and a better person, but it actually is a good example for others and that they can learn from it. And when you're nice to people and you're compassionate to people, and you help people that are down. If it happens to us, it's quite uplifting when someone reaches out and can return the favor when we need them the most. I think that your story shows or incorporates all of these factors.
0: Thanks for listening to the Better Call Daddy Show. Now you can subscribe on Apple Podcasts, Google Play, Spotify, iHeartRadio, and tune in.